Hey folks, John from AS for Alcoholic again. Today's conversation is with Chelsea Pegues. She is the host of the Sticky Eddie podcast named after her late father. Um, he passed away from complications due to alcoholism. And although she herself is not an alcoholic, she felt the brunt of that. And the podcast was her way of trying to better understand where those of us afflicted with this thing come from. And it was great to hear her story. It was great to hear her perspective and um, an all around genuinely enjoyable conversation. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Chelsea Pegues. Chelsea, thank you very much for being here, for doing this. I appreciate it. I appreciate you. Um, and thank you for having me just so that um, we have some context as to how we know each other that you reached out to me and asked me to be on your podcast, which is called oh. the Sticky Eddie podcast. And I think an important thing for anyone searching for this is that sticky is spelled with two eyes. Yes. <laughs> so, and I, I, I just, I don't want there to be any, um, and anyone to miss out because I think that it's <laughs> important what you do. Um, Thank you. What is the, and, and just so we know, what are the two eyes? Um, well, let, let me ask you, let's, let's start with like your podcast and how it came about um, sure. just briefly, like in that. Okay. <laughs> so hi, my name is Chelsea. Um, I am the hostess, I guess, of the Sticky Eddie podcast. Uh, it's just my way of messing with people. I just want you to, to try harder to find it. No, mm -hmm. um, Sticky is spelled with two eyes um, because my father, Eddie, was a drummer. And so that was the name that he carried with him on stage. He was Sticky. He had two sticks. And on his business card, um, that's how it looked with two little sticks as the eyes. It was his little joke to the world. Um, he was very, very humorous. He loved to tell stories, loved to laugh. He was, I guess, what you might say, a quote unquote, typical musician, very charismatic and loved the crowd, fed off of that energy for sure. Uh, sadly for as gregarious of a person, that he was, he suffered almost his entire life with alcoholism. And that is what eventually took his life in December, 2020. He died from a gastrointestinal bleed due to cirrhosis of the liver. And in the following months, I was just kind of in a daze. My dad was my best friend, but he died so uh, unceremoniously, if you will, definitely not befitting of the legend and the hero that I thought he was and, and held him to be. So I batted around the idea of starting a podcast. I didn't have a lot of education as to what it's like to be an alcoholic or an addict, addict of any kind. I knew that there had to be more to this as a bystander. Um, there had to be a better way for me to just reach out and help someone who might be in my very position as the child mm -hmm. of an alcoholic, someone who loves someone with an addiction. 
And so the Sticky Eddie podcast was born to kind of rally the troops and talk with a new special guest every week, doctors, authors, addicts themselves, other children of alcoholics, people of all walks of this, this horrible life, <laughs> lifestyle. Yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, and so that puts you in an interesting position here, um, especially because I usually talk to people who suffer directly from alcoholism. And so my questions and my thoughts are having to be redirected here. And how fun for you. <laughs> exactly. No, and that this is this is good. And this is this is important. So you know, one of the very first thing or one of the first things I ask people is, what was their first experience with alcohol? Um, and I can I can tell you that. <laughs> Yeah. And just, you know, as, as a child, whether, you know, whether it was direct or, or indirect or how, I mean, that's, that's for me, that's sort of the, was, it was one of the, the important questions that I had to answer and figure out. And it really helped me to better understand my relationship with my father and his alcoholism and so on and so forth. So, um, what do you remember as the first, um, thought oh, or gosh. memory of alcohol? My, dad loved wine when I was a child and it's every time I'm in a liquor store and I see a Carlo Rossi mm -hmm. jug are you familiar yes very yes <laughs> so well I mean some people it's it's a very uh inexpensive jug literally jug of wine and um it's not for everybody that's for sure <laughs> But that's what I remember as my first glimpse of where did this, this magical potion come from that made everybody either act crazy or, or laugh harder? Where was the source of, of all of this energy? And I remember seeing those jugs as a little kid, like in the pantry on the floor. Mm -hmm. And it, it was interesting to me because even as a child I I noticed that it was always behind something not really hidden but just not prominent and out in the open but what was weird about that was there were more there were nicer quality bottles of wine up on the top of the refrigerator or present on the dining room table um, so it was weird because I'm like, well, what is this? Like, what is so bad about this? Mm -hmm. So it was almost like my first thought was, well, I guess the higher quality is okay. And it's more acceptable socially, mm -hmm. but at the end of the night, when he needs a little extra, like he'll just reach for like the $6 jug in the, in the broom closet. <laughs> and that's, so that's where I first started seeing it and realizing there is something weird about the amount of alcohol that's present and how it is presented in the house. Yeah. Yeah. My grandmother was an alcoholic as well on my mother's side. Um, my mother thankfully did not uh, deal with this affliction, but she was also a fan of the Carlo Rossi jugs, the smaller ones she would get. And there was, there was a period where shortly after high school, I was living with my mother who my grandmother was always li also living with her, me and my brother. And she accused us 
she thought that we had been dipping into her wine and I was 18 or 19 and I was certainly drinking at this point, <clears throat> but I was out getting my own from other people. I had no, like, I was not interested in that. I think I was, you know, after like beer and scotch or whatever I thought that I was into. Okay. And so it was this very interesting thing. And it turns out, and my, even my mother was like, I don't think that you are. Um, she was just drinking and she didn't remember how much she had drank. Oh, wow. But you say the jugs were kept in like the pantry and they were down on the floor. And so that was something that, and then my mother didn't drink. There was no other alcohol, but I remember Carlo Rossi being on the floor. Isn't the that pantry. weird? It's <laughs> Mm-hmm. it's the cinderella of uh of wines i guess mm-hmm. like go go sit in the closet in shame um yeah. isn't that something that we both have that recollection that's so weird and so there's definitely you know this idea of the cheap stuff out of the way hidden do it alone whereas you know we're always trying to present something better to the world than what actually is right yeah absolutely um i've come to to realize that about a lot of people who suffer with assorted addiction Mm -hmm. um no matter what it is you are just always trying to present better to the world so you know that something is off but you just don't have the capacity to to deal with it yeah um and so then when you when you noticed this and you saw that you know adults were we're getting excited or laughing or the energy was coming from this. Did you think, oh, that's something that I want too? Not at first. Mm-hmm. Um, definitely not as a small child. I think my dad took his first drink when he was six or seven. Yeah, it was it was different times in the late 50s and, and 60s. Um, not at first. I want to say that I probably tried wine for the first time when I was 13 or 14. Um, My dad, as I mentioned, was a drummer. So he'd play a lot at night on the weekends. And by the time I was an adolescent, my mother was out a lot as well because she was caring for my grandmother who had Alzheimer's. So nobody was around or I would wait till there was a moment when no one was around. And I I remember, I, I, I think it was, a little bit better than Carlo Rossi. I want to see the first wine that I ever tried <laughs> was probably Gato Negro. And, um, and I took a, I know it's so high. Familiar too. Yes. No, I, yes. <laughs> only, only better by a couple of bucks. Um, right. But I took a sip and I was like, ah, it's okay. It, it tastes very bitter. I, I mm. was not immediately a sommelier by any means. Um, But I do remember immediately it hit me in the head. I immediately felt dizzy and warm and just definitely not 100% with my faculties. And this is only after a couple of sips because of course I'm 13, 14 and I haven't, this is my first experience. And I did not like feeling out of control the way that that made me feel. Um, and so I didn't really stick to it. Every teenager that I know has experimented with beer and other types of hard liquor, rum and things like that. And if you say that you haven't, I'm oh, 99% sure that you're lying. Um, but 
you know, the extent of my experimentation with alcohol was a lot to do with like the social scene and, and parties as a teenager and things like that. For some reason, I never became a true alcoholic. I never sought it out. I never needed it to breathe. I just, I never wanted that type of escapism. And that's one thing I could never understand about my dad. What, why were you chasing that level of escape so hard that it had to be alcohol? I mean, I'm, I'm glad it was alcohol and, and, you know, I hate to say it, but maybe nothing like heroin or anything like mm -hmm. that. Um, if that makes sense. I don't even like to say that now that, I, that I've been doing the podcast for some time because I've gained such an education that it's almost like depression. Like you can't liken anyone's level of depression to anyone else's. Everybody's, everyone's experience is so different, but um, maybe perhaps it's still naive of me to think that there are harder substances out there but again maybe maybe i'm wrong in saying that because perhaps you can't equate one to another i think you know it doesn't <clears throat> i don't know that it, to discuss it it doesn't help for us to to compare suffering mm -hmm. um i there are certainly neurological um differences in drugs you know that are that are more addictive and i you know when you talk about why would somebody chase that escapism? And, um, you know, I, I think that for me, I think it's two things. The, the, my brain is, is wired in such a way, like when you had that first taste of Gato Negro, which I used to buy the big bottles of those as well. I remember that cat very well on the label. Mm. And, um, when you were like, yeah, I was kind of dizzy and, and, but, and I didn't like feeling out of control. And that's a normal response at that age. And it's so different to like, I had a drink and it was like, I knew exactly where I was supposed to be. Or I had a drink and it was like, I just went crazy and, and it was awesome, you know, yeah. until the next morning. And, um, and I think that for me, you know, the escapism was from a traumatic childhood, certainly, but it was also coupled with the fact that my brain was constantly tricking myself. And I couldn't, you, it, once you get into that cycle of addiction, it's, it really is almost impossible to get out. And so, um, and you know, I, everyone's different, right? Why, why escape life? I mean, I was talking to somebody the other day and it's like, well, yeah, I, they're like, do, do you want to drink anymore? And I was like, well, well, yeah, I do, but not really. I want to escape because I'm bothered or irritated or sad or depressed. And it was always the easiest way to feel better. To do that. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it is, but it is really hard when you go, Ooh, that's not for me. Um, and then, so you would go to parties as a kid, as a teenager, you know, and it was always just take it or leave it. Yeah. I mean, I'm not going to lie. There's a lot of peer pressure, of course, when you're a teenager. So most of the times it's take it and everybody has their experience as an adolescent where you have one too many. I am no mm -hmm. angel. I don't live, you know, a, a sober mm -hmm. lifestyle 100%. 
now in my quote unquote old age <laughs> as a parent and someone with a lot of responsibility, I will have a few glasses of wine on the weekends and call it a day. And, mm -hmm. and by a few, I mean, maybe like two or three, if that I'm, I'm very, I don't drink during the week. You know, I just have a different set of guidelines. Um, and I think a lot of it has to do with, I saw the mess that it would make firsthand. So when I was out and about and discovering myself through these social settings, it didn't really, I didn't lean so much on alcohol as I did on weed. I used to be a huge pot smoker, um, which is so interesting to me because for someone who sat there and said at 13 or 14, like, I didn't like the feeling of not being, you know, not having it all together. When I discovered weed, I was probably 16 or 17. And I was like, oh, this is cool because I kind of know what I'm doing still, but I feel way more relaxed about it. And everything is hilarious. Mm -hmm. <laughs> everything. Um, and so looking back now, I feel this is something that my dad and I never spoke about either, which is interesting. He never asked me about the first time that I had a drink and he never, he was very laid back about things that I would do. I mean, he was an amazing dad to me. He was not a helicopter dad. He, he kind of let me fall down and make mistakes. And then he would always be there to say, well, you know, this is, this is why that went wrong. Let's see what we could do better next time. Mm -hmm. So there's so much duality and it, and it left me quite befuddled as an adult, because for someone who was such an amazing dad and a loving dad and a fantastic grandparent, why were you harming yourself in such a way? And that's always what he would say, John, he would say, oh, you know, I like the feeling it gives me in my head. I just, I like the feeling when it takes over and I feel warm and good and like, I guess, empowered. Yeah. And it just left me always so confused because my dad would sit behind a drum set and he had the room. That was it. If my dad was at the drums, that band was on fire and the room was sold. And it was like, he was king of the world for however long the set was. And people knew him and people loved him. He was impossible to, to dislike. Um, and it just left me so confused. You already have the power, you already have the charisma, even when you're sober, why do you need the extra the extra kick. That is always what I would say. Yeah. I think alcoholics and for me too, is there's that, there's a, there's a pretty big divide between um, how people see me and how mm -hmm. they feel about me and how I see myself <laughs> and how I feel about myself. And I'm often thinking about somebody will say something about something I've done or something I said, or how I, I did something for them. And, um, and I'm thinking like, uh, either that was no big deal, or I really wish that I felt the same way inside. And I'm, I, I, I don't know that. I don't know how, and I think alcohol helped me feel that way mm -hmm. in some weird, distorted, twisted way of, man, this is that warmth. This is that hug that I have been yeah 
seeking, right? When you, when you talk about your father having it, right? He already had it. He didn't need it from this, this thing, this drug, this, this drink. And, um, it's, it just, when I hear you say it and I'm like, I know what that is. And I I wish that I wish there was some answer because I still feel it six years sober. Right. I still feel it. I go like somebody said, like a, like a phantom limb. Yes, it really, really is. And so, I mean, that's, I still continue to, I deal with it. I mean, struggle is such a, I think an overused word. It's just there, you know, it's Mm -hmm. still in my daily life. Otherwise I wouldn't be having conversations like this with you, which is a fortunate thing. Um, But yeah, it's, it's that sort of gap that I think alcoholics try to bridge and your father, you, you, there was no like Jekyll and Hyde with him. There was no, I mean, not until the end. Mm. Um, and, and this is, it sucks so bad. Um, so my dad and I, as I mentioned, were best friends from the second I entered the world. That was it. We were just simpatico. He saw he, and, and I am not the only one that says this of him, but he saw you always, you know, he just had that capability. If you were talking to him, he had um, my husband and I joke, he, he had a Clint Eastwood squints, mm-hmm. just the left eye had like a little bit of a hooded eyelid or like just a heavy eyelid. And he always was squinting at you in such an intimidating way. But if he liked you, you could tell like his eyes would open a little wider and they would like sparkle, you know, um, he really took time to get to know people and, and care and felt, made you feel like you were the only person in the room. And so as a little girl, I mean, that's all you want. You want your dad's attention. You want him to show you the ways of the world and, you know, help you learn how to ride a bike and all these things. I don't remember as a, I, I know that my parents fought like cats and dogs. My mother um, is beautiful and was even more so physically attractive in the eighties when they, when they first met. Um, but she was always very insecure about the fact that he was a musician and, and a working musician. And she honestly, knowing my dad, I don't think she ever had anything to worry about, but I think, you know, she had a traumatic past as well. And it was always in the back of her mind. So when I came along, I do remember vividly my parents fighting verbally a lot as I was growing up. One Christmas Eve, when we first moved into the house that I ended up um, spending the rest of my childhood and adolescence in, they had a fight over something. I think it was so ridiculous. It was probably about what we were gonna have for dinner. And it escalated in such a way that I remember my mom having a knife. I don't know what she was planning on doing. And I'm sitting in the middle of the kitchen floor and I'm just sobbing. And I'm saying, please, please just get a divorce. Please just get a divorce. Like I cannot take this anymore. So it really wasn't so much Jekyll and Hyde because he wouldn't get violent. He would just get emotional. And I think the anger of, on my mom's part always came from, why can't you just stop? Why can't you stop? It didn't make him mean or violent. It just made him sloppy 
and annoying and just a hot mess. Just, he was just not, not himself. And it frustrated us so badly because he was always cool. Like when he was just his regular self, he was just magnetic and we couldn't understand why he would want to dilute that, diminish it, degrade it, whichever adjective you prefer. It was, it was all of those things. Um, as he got older, a few years ago, he actually suffered, um, a small stroke. So he had drank so much to the point where he was hallucinating. His body just couldn't take it anymore. Um, we rushed into the hospital. He's, he had suffered a very small stroke. Um, and his, he was just in a little bit of trouble internally. He couldn't speak for about three weeks um, after that. And so I had to get him into a physical rehabilitation center. Mm-hmm. And while he was there, I filled him in since he couldn't talk back. And I told him, you've been saying some mean things. You've been getting a little mean. You've been telling us <clears throat> that you do so much for us. You're always bending over backwards to make everybody happy. Why can't we just let you drink? Why can't we just let you be happy and live the life that you want to live? And so I think toward the end of his life, he was starting to feel like things just had not panned out the way that he wanted them to go. My parents, I got married in 2009 and uh, my parents waited until I got married to get divorced. So thanks guys. Um, and it was weird because they ended up actually becoming best friends. They ended up spending like every day together up until the end of his life. And it was, it was so odd. Um, I was thankful it made holidays a lot easier as an adult, but, um, it was just very strange, but so they got divorced and he moved into a really nice apartment, not far from my mom. But I think he was looking around and taking stock of his life. Like I didn't make it to being a world famous drummer. Um, You know, I was able to retire from my day job, but now I'm sitting here and I don't have the same level of socialization and lifestyle that I once had. You know, he was just, I think he was very unfair and judgmental of himself. He didn't see what he had as true success. He judged himself incredibly harshly. And here is his family, myself in particular, who don't have the tools to say to him, I see you, what's really going on? What can we do if you're not going to stop? Can we explore harm reduction? Or is there some other type of recovery process that you feel comfortable with just so that we can get you to the point where you're comfortable you feel seen, we're helping instead of making it worse and harming you. And everybody can just kind of, you know, move along in this way where we're still always going to be concerned, but we, we can have your back more appropriately. That's what should have happened. That's what should have happened. And so to answer your question, there was no immediate violence but I think it just made it worse because we knew the person that he was and he just couldn't see it. And it was just frustrating all around. Yeah. And they talk a lot about, um, 
I mean, I don't know if you've ever gotten involved in Al-Anon at all or anything Not yet. that matter. No. <clears throat> and, um, and I've had some, obviously I'm not involved directly because I mean, maybe I should be, or, you know, there's another one, which is, um, I have a friend who's in the ACA, which is adult children of alcoholics and he's right. an alcoholic himself. And, um, again, just trying to understand these feelings where you're just like, why, why, why? Because if I had some sort of trying to find some solace in all of, you know, the confusion um, and in Al-Anon talking about those, that frustration and one thing, you know, as an alcoholic and trying to help other alcoholics is, is that I cannot make somebody do something. And you, I'm sure you understand this now, um, and it's tough because I have friends who drink and drink too much. People I see on the regular. Um, and you're like, well, all I can do is, you know, put boundaries and borders around the behaviors that I won't tolerate. And yet that's not really an easy or or reasonable thing to do with, with family members, you know. No, none not- of this. No, not, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt. No, it's just, that's, and, and that's, that's all I was going to say. Yeah. None of this is easy. There's no right way to do it. And, and to what you just said about Al-Anon. So this might sound so ignorant. I apologize. I have highly inconsiderate upstairs neighbors. <laughs> Are they moving furniture right now? They got the pool always, table. They're moving it's, it. It's always under construction. Mm-hmm. I'm so sorry. It's okay. Um, <laughs> It's just flavor, and, right? It's soundscape. It's part if of If anybody the- listening has tips on how you deal with your in, inconsiderate neighbors, um, mm. please DM me. I'd, <laughs> I'd love to hear. Um, I did not have any equipment or yeah. any information on what to do as the child of an alcoholic. I thought Al-Anon was something that you only did as the person afflicted. I didn't mm-hmm. realize that family members or loved ones or friends could go and sit in on meetings and gain support. Um, you know, I'm 35, I'm, I'm going to be 36 in November. So a large part of my adolescence, really, I, you, barely had Google. I mean, Google came into play as I was an adult. So there weren't a wealth of resources available to me. So I just kind of, and I don't know, I'm, maybe I had close friends that kind of sensed that my dad indulged too much, but it, it wasn't anything that I ever talked about. It wasn't common knowledge. And again, he was so charismatic. I don't know how many people would have really noticed. So I kind of spent adolescence and and my young adulthood not saying anything, not reaching out for help for myself. I was always so worried about my dad and um, obviously rightfully so, I loved him. But perhaps if I had been a little bit more concerned with my own knowledge and and helping myself learn more, I just would have been more well-rounded to say like, here, here's, I I just learned about harm reduction a couple of, uh, maybe a month ago. No idea what that meant prior to starting the podcast. And, And I'm floored because I'm like, oh, it's really not one size fits all. It's really not, you know, abstinence or nothing. There are other ways to 
improve your life and, and just start to heal and do a little yeah. better one day at a time, as they say. Yeah. <clears throat> I mean, I have always been, for me, it was, it was AA and it was abstinence, you know, and it was what I needed and it was the structure that I needed and it was the push that I needed, but certainly not for everyone. And I am not even, you know, I've never been interested in sort of imposing or saying there's only one way. And, you know, I, I have a friend and she works in harm reduction in many, many ways. And so it's always interesting to me to hear her perspectives on things about like people who are hard drug users and like, Hey, we're just trying to make their life a little bit better today. As you just said, Um, maybe telling them that they're bad and they need to stop doesn't help that. And it doesn't No, because I was told I was bad and needed to stop for years and it didn't, it didn't do it. It didn't do anything for me, you know, and I can't imagine what people who actually cared about me thought they were just like, oh, well, there's so-and-so doing such and such, I guess this really sucks, (laughs) but but what do we do? What do we do? And oh, you know what? That's so funny. I, I feel like it's, it's not funny. I, you know what? I pride myself on being an English and communications major, and I really have to stop using these filler words as like, it's so funny. <laughs> as I do, yes. It's so rudimentary and basic. Um, so I'm only going to use SAT words from here. Okay. On yeah. <laughs> I find it interesting that we start sex education so young for kids and teenagers, and yet there is no drug and alcohol education except to say, don't smoke pot, don't drink alcohol. These are what will happen. These are the effects that it will have on your body chemistry and your organs and such, but they don't, they just make it shameful. They don't actually explore like, well, here's what to do if you do try this and you like it too much and you feel like at an early age, you might be in a little bit of trouble or you see like where this is going and you need the extra support. Maybe that's what needs to start happening. Maybe we need to advocate not so much for don't do it at all because that's never going to happen. Never, ever. I brace myself for the day. I mean, cause my son is seven now. So I don't know how long I have, how many years I have before he comes home one day. And I'm like, there's something up with you. Like, what, what were you doing in the woods after school? Right. And then there needs to be more preparation at a young, younger age. I, I don't know how that would look per se. Um, I know that you can only do things within a certain set of guidelines in school, Um, some schools, you can't even show them how to do the condom and banana thing. I don't know if they did that when you were in school. I don't know what that is. I don't know what that is at all. What is that? When, so some sex education classes, they'll actually take a banana and put, and show you how to put a condom on by putting it on the banana or, you know, some other phallic shaped fruit or vegetable. Yes, yes, yes. I'm but it's sorry. So no, it's it's mm-hmm. it's I mean, you know, I'm glad that your mind didn't automatically go there, actually. <laughs> but it's kind of laughable and it and it just it's such a joke that you're not 
we have to take away the stigma. We have to help people understand because you overindulge, because you became addicted, because you have this affliction, you're not an evil person. There's nothing about you that's evil for doing this. Yeah. The way that the substance is attacking you and your psyche and how you feel, that's what we need to work on. And if it's not possible for you to quit altogether, then we need to do whatever we can to save you as a person, you know, to make you feel more comfortable or to work on the roots of your problems that are making you want to do this. Yeah. I, I, um, and kids are going to learn it one way or the other. So why not give them a positive, uh, uh, source of information, right? Because either they're going to learn from their friends to do it, or they're going to be growing up in an abusive, addicted, home with a relationship that is so confusing like you're supposed to be the one that loves me why are you hurting me yeah and so these are the lessons that that kids grow up with or you know you're bad for doing it and then all that does is create shame which you know shame guilt well i want that to go away so i'll just do some more and then that just perpetuates for you know forever if, if allowed. It's such a spiral. I asked my dad uh, the summer before he passed away. I looked him dead in the eye and I was like, did something happen to you as a kid? Do you remember going through anything or do you think you may have repressed something? Because my dad would go through such long stretches of sobriety. When I was in high school, there was a period he was so stone cold, sober and clean for four years. I mean, it was miraculous. The things that I knew he was capable of, which made it all the more frustrating. Um, And so at the time that I asked him this question, he was sober. And I just wanted to know, like, sincerely, what is at the root of your problem? Should we be focusing on something else aside just from the substance abuse? And he, you know, he went to Catholic school in in the era where a lot of things were allowed that would never be allowed today, um, Mm -hmm. just physically, you know, with nuns and rulers and on all the stereotypical things that those things happened to him. He actually suffered permanent hearing loss um, from getting smacked on the side of the head. And then he hit something a locker or a wall um he said something that might have been a little too playful or, or sarcastic to one of the school authority figures and this person just hit him on the head he hit another object and suffered permanent hearing loss so things like that I always wondered you know did you suffer in some other way that you're just not ready to speak on and he said no um pretty emphatically not in such a way where I thought he was covering something up or diverting, but I believed him when he said no. Um, And he always pointed out that he had a happy childhood, you know, his parents took care of him. But conversely, he would tell me, oh, you know, I was like three or four and I asked my parents for my first drum set and they bought me a guitar. Um, you know, (laughs) my grandmother, my, my father's mother also died from cirrhosis of the liver, you know, so these are things that he had seen and grown up with as well. And just, you know, from his own traumas was not able to break the cycle. 
Um, so I feel like better mental health support for people who are suffering. And, and we need to somehow as a country really work on creating free mental health support for everybody or, or extremely, extremely low cost mental health support. Because after losing my dad, it took me a good six months to find someone that I could afford to talk to on a weekly basis. Because believe me, if I could talk to somebody every day, I would. Um, but it is fiscally impossible to keep that up. And a lot of people that suffer from addiction could really use the help. They are addicted for a reason. It is not often because they want to be trapped in this mm-hmm. zone of suffering. Yeah. Yeah. I think when you, when you're questioning, was there something behind it? And I, I'm, my first thought was yes. And um, that, and again, I'm, you know, coming from my own experience and just discussing things with people is that I had a lot of very <laughs> um, painful and exhausting and abusive and, you know, traumatic events in my childhood from my father. Also, and I think that my brain is wired that way, that there's no, that it, it's both nature and nurture, at least for me and people that I have, I have discussed this with is that it, so it's, it's twofold. It's not that if I had had a perfect childhood and drank for the first time at, I don't know, whatever it was, 15 or 16, I would have been like, oh, well, there's no problem. I probably still would have had that immediate, wow, this is, this is awesome. I feel so much better now. Um, I think all those things just exacerbated and then made it even like it made the wow, even wower. Is that an SAC word? (laughs) Exactly. Yes. Yes. That is my 25 cent word. Um, But yeah, so, so I think that there, and I, again, I don't, I don't know everybody's story and certainly not your father's. Um, but I think those two things definitely often work in tandem because I also know people who went through a hell of a lot and they were just like, I had to stop and they were able to do that. And I go, how, because it was like the worst thing in the world for me. And it took forever and it took a whole multiple rooms of people and, and time and patience and, you know, a lot of work to be able to just be moderately miserable. <laughs> you, you know what I mean? As a sober person, appropriately miserable, <laughs> appropriately miserable in this world that we live in. But um, no, and I'm joking, but I mean, that's kind of sometimes what it is and that's fine. That's, that's some days and some days it's great. And that's cool too. Um, so yeah. And I don't, not that, it, not that you should ever stop trying to understand it. Yeah. Right. And, and the, 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 the bulk of it, the whole of it. But I think that that's sometimes it's like, that's because I certainly feel that way. I'm just an alcoholic. That's why I drink. Why do you drink? Well, I'm an alcoholic. Yeah. <laughs> and that's, <laughs> and- that makes the most sense to me in my head. And I know a lot of people don't like that phrase or that word, that term, but, um, and I don't know how you feel about it. Um, I don't, I think alcoholic is appropriate. That's what you are. And they say, you know, if you know, you know, if you say that joke to someone and they laugh, like I just did, then they know they get it. If they, if they're like, Oh, then that's not comfortable for them. And that's okay. 
Right. What I'm learning is, and I, I asked uh, a guest uh, recently on my own show, how do you feel about the word disease? Because I struggled with disease most of my life. I didn't believe that it was a disease. I felt like, you know, if you really loved your family and you really wanted to stick around that you would, it wasn't comfortable for me. Now I know more about why I, I didn't like that because I just didn't have enough education surrounding this whole process. And, um, now I feel like disease is appropriate because it, it is something that happens mm. to your brain. You know, this is, this is mm -hmm. to do with your chemistry and your makeup and, and all of these other elements that comprise who you are and what you're capable of, of handling or not. Um, so I think, John, it just depends on how how much education the person that you're talking to has, what their perspective is, what their mindset on other things are mm. as well. Um, you'll find this conversation would go very differently with someone who is deeply religious perhaps, um, or, or just live their life a little differently. Um, yeah. And so again, being on the other side of addiction, when I stopped smoking pot, I just stopped. Like one day I was just like, oh, this is, I am not doing this anymore. And it, it, it was like, I aged out of it almost. Um, and I was able to just not do it anymore. And that's miraculous to some people. And if I could open my head and like show you how I did it, I would like, it just wasn't a big deal for me. Um, I used to smoke cigarettes when I was a teenager, yeah, I smoked, I started smoking at 16 and I stopped when I was 21 or 22. That was incredibly hard. Yeah, I, I had such a tough time mm -hmm. smoking cigarettes so much like, and I was still an athlete. I was a high school athlete while I was smoking the way that I was. And I actually had a collapsed lung at one point. <laughs> like, um, so this is why I say there's so much duality in everything. And now that I'm on the other side and my dad is gone, I look at myself and I'm like, you little twerk. Like, as my dad would say, you crouton, like, what were you? <laughs> why, who the hell are you to judge? Why do we judge so harshly instead of meeting each other with compassion and just saying like, what are you going through and how can I help? How can I be there for you? Even if you never stop till your dying breath, how can I be there for you in a way where this relationship can continue on for both of us? Yeah. Especially when it's those relationships that are the most important to us. <clears throat> um, yeah. And I think too, to go back to, we were talking about terminology and I think a lot of times there's this um, meta conversation about the terminology we use. And I would only say that when I went through my 12 step program, God shows up a lot. Right. And I've never been not let alone deeply religious, not religious at all, not interested, kind of objected to all of that. <clears throat> and at a certain point getting into it and working with other people, I kind of just said, you know what? I don't care about that word anymore. I just want to feel better. Yeah. And so 
I would say to anybody who's concerned about specific terminologies and labels and words that are used, find the ones that are comfortable for you. I would only encourage anyone to not let a certain word get in the way of them feeling better, regardless of how you define yourself or your affliction or your disease. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's at the end of the day, it's not important about whether or not I believe in God or um, I call myself an alcoholic or is this really a disease, right? Getting mired in these sort of the minutia of this stuff has never helped me. <laughs> you know, what I, I mean? agree. And I'm, I'm like, oh, it, it feels like a weight lifted talking to you about this because I agree so wholeheartedly now my my present self now has the energy and the capacity to say who gives a fuck what anybody else thinks about anything as long as the person that you care about or or you for yourself is comfortable in their skin and can face the next day and work on it and continue to do so um i was listening to to another show earlier today when the person was referring to the gym And sometimes the hardest thing to do when you're working out is just showing up to the gym. Yeah. And then once you start working out or or whatever your routine is, you get a little bit more comfortable and you go on. And before you know it, your hour or whatever is up and you live to fight another day. And so we need to start removing labels, like you said, and removing boundaries of what things should look like and just do the hardest part. Just find your reason to show up. Find your reason to stick around um, and just do what, what you can every day, however that looks to you, however comfortable you feel. I run every day. Um, I get up at 5 a.m. because my husband has to leave the house by 6. And I run anywhere between 4 to 5 miles a morning. And every lap, I'm like, this is it. I'm going home. I'm so tired. Like, <laughs> it's still mm-hmm. so dark outside. What I just, I can't. And before I know it, I just zone out. My thoughts take over and, you know, my timer runs. And I'm like, oh my God, and, you know, five miles went by. And I thought it was going to be so miserable and hard. And here I am. I'm done for the day. I get to go home and have a cup of coffee, mm-hmm. reward myself in that way. Um, so we really need to try to find a way to make people feel, feel like you can do it. Even if you falter, even if you fall over, even if whatever happens, you are capable of doing it. There is a way for you to feel comfortable in your skin and fight that good fight and be there for the next day. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, feeling, you know, my losing my dad is by far the worst thing, the worst thing I've ever gone through. Um, Just to summarize really fast. So it has not yet been a year. Um, I was mad at my dad for a couple of weeks before he passed away. I was not really speaking with him. And that was hard because we spoke at least three times a day at length, usually. And um, So this was around Christmas time. The last time I saw him in person, I want to say was probably November 21st or so, 2020. We took a a walk in the woods with my son 
And I knew something was up. I had a feeling he had fallen off the wagon and it made me angry and sad and just pissed off in general. I wanted to get off the merry-go-round because I was tired of seeing him harm himself. It was getting to the point where he was falling out of chairs and, you know, he looked embarrassing. I'm just going to plug my computer in. Mm -hmm. He looked embarrassing to his neighbors. Um, You know, people were really starting to notice that there was a problem and I was so angry So we weren't really speaking the morning of December 21st, my mom called me. And at that point she was calling me like every morning, Hey, have you heard from your dad? And my attitude was you guys live five feet away from each other, get up and go check on him. If you're that concerned, but both of us were just so over it at that point. And I said, no, you know, she called me that morning. I said, no, I haven't heard from him. And it was funny, uh, there I go again, it was interesting because that morning I was out for a run and I rounded the corner and I stopped dead in my tracks and I took a picture of the sky. I never do that while while I'm exercising, but the sky, John, was the pinkest pink sunrise I've ever seen. It was as though the world was on fire. It was gorgeous. And I took a picture of it and I finished up. I went about my day and uh, it was about three o'clock in the afternoon when my mom called again. And she's like, there, um, you know, your neighbors are saying that they haven't seen your dad in a couple of days. Um, so now this is December 23rd. The neighbors are saying that you haven't seen your dad in a couple of days and there's a smell in the hallway now. And I'm thinking the first thing I thought was just that he had just maybe gotten physically sick and just the smell was emanating. Um, so I tried calling him a couple of times and he didn't answer. And I'm like, my thoughts didn't even go to something like happened. I'm just like, he passed out, he got sick, he passed out. This is annoying. I'm gonna go all the way up there because my parents live about a half an hour north of me. And it's just gonna be for nothing because it wouldn't be the first time that it happened. So I called the local police and I asked them to do a wellness check. And they went, they called me back when they arrived and they said, you know, we can't open the door. Is it okay if we break, break in? Fine, no problem. He'll pay for it later. And maybe he'll see then that this needs to stop. Then I didn't hear from them for 20 minutes or so. Now I'm pacing back and forth and I'm like, something's wrong. If you don't hear from back from them right away, That's not a good thing. So my husband begged me not to get in the car. He's like, you just don't want something to be wrong. And you go there and you walk in in the middle of it. And now I'm all big and tough. Well, it's my dad. Nothing's going to stop me, you know, and I get in the car. I'm not even five minutes on the parkway. And my husband called me and told me that the worst had happened indeed. And I screamed, I I screamed for what felt like a year. Um, It was just the shock. Like, what did you just say to me? And I got up to my parents, uh, the drive, like I mentioned, is usually about a half an hour. I remember looking at the clock and thinking, Jesus Christ, I made this in six minutes six minutes, I must've been doing 110 the whole way there. I don't know how many lights I blew. I don't care, whatever. 
Um, I pull into the driveway and there's cops everywhere. And I go running up the steps and toward the, the door. And the cop like clotheslined me. Um, and, and when they say like adrenaline gives you strength, like I see how mothers lift cars because I took this guy, like I was the Hulk and he was a big, you know, stocky cop type. And I almost threw him out of the way and I'm screaming, that's my dad, that's my dad. And I just, I couldn't, it was like a movie. Like I couldn't even believe that this was actually happening to me finally. And I say finally, because it was like, after all those years of threatening him, like something bad is going to happen to you if you don't stop. And so the cops explained to me um, that he was in his bed. He had a, a clearly, he had had some sort of bleed, um, but it looked like he just fell asleep in his bed. I couldn't see him. It had been two days at least. Um, and, and we're outside at this point and, and I could smell that it had been a few days. And, um, you know, they, they took him away and they explained to me what the next steps would be as far as retrieving his things and, and um, dealing with a funeral home and all of that. So I watched them take him away in the blankets. They told me not to, and I just couldn't not look at him one last time. And um, I got a call from the funeral director um, later that week because I knew that he would want to be cremated and I had anticipated being able to say goodbye to him before cremation. I think just because everyone's words were not setting into me, it wasn't clear to me that like I would never see him again because he, he did not look like a human person <laughs> any longer. Um, so when the funeral director called me and he was like, you, I cannot allow you to come and, and, and say goodbye. It's just, you don't want to remember him that way. I was shocked. And now, you know, months later, I look back on that and I'm like, I should, I don't know why I didn't pick up on that <laughs> the first 10 or 20 times <laughs> that someone told me. Um, so this is why I started thinking, you know, how can I help? someone else from going down this road because to me I look at photos of my dad and it's unbearable unbearable John that I'll never see him again um I still feel his whiskers you know because he was a bear hugger like a big you know he would he was six foot two or six foot three and he would envelop you and give you these big bear hugs and you could feel his whiskers. Um, those are the parts, that's what I struggle with. So Christmas Eve comes the next day after losing my dad and my husband and I are standing in my son's room and we're tucking him in. And all of a sudden we look at each other my husband and I, we didn't say anything to each other, but both of us knew what was happening. The entire room, all of a sudden, smelled like my dad's aftersheath and scotch. 
And it lasted for like a solid 20 minutes. And it was the weirdest thing. Now I had not yet been in his apartment to clean up. And even if I had been, that would not have been what we, what we would have been smelling. <laughs> um, I hadn't been near his personal effects yet. None of it, none of that. There was no earthly reason for that smell to waft through the room as strong as it did. But we're grateful, even if it was our imagination, it would have been odd because, you know, it was a shared illusion. But we're grateful. We're grateful for, for that moment and for feeling like perhaps he was there. I'm grateful um, every time I look up at a sunrise or I look at the picture of the sunrise that I took that day. And, um, and I know that he's there. You know, I just feel pink. Pink was his favorite color. So I feel like that shade of pink was him letting me know that he's okay. And to be honest with you, I tried to say that his, his, there were our elements of his death that are a little bit fortuitous um, because I was able to think, well, how can I help? How can I start, start something that will help others? And it brought me to the podcast. And I'm able to sit here with people like yourself and some of the guests that I've had on my own show and, and learn more and educate myself and do better. And now, now people know him. Now people know his name. <laughs> and he deserved that. He deserved that. That's that's what he wanted, and that's what he deserved. And people need to know what this can do, and, and how this affects people. And by golly, whoever is listening to me sob like a maniac, <laughs> you need to know that you're loved and you're worth it. You're worth it to somebody. And just do the best you can. It doesn't have to be perfect. You do not have to be abstinent for the rest of your life. But just do the best you can to be comfortable, man, because you're worth it. You're so worth it. The end. I'm sorry. <laughs> <clears throat> um, yeah. Thank you for for sharing that. I know, I know I I know that it's not easy and um, I'm a little embarrassed. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> I have some similar, um, similar experiences with the end of my father's life. I wasn't there. Just thank you for, for sharing, you know, and um, yeah, it's, it's an important thing to remember that the, the actions that we take reverberate ever yeah. so slightly right like it's not but even if it reverberates to one or two people it's really important to those one or two people yeah right it's not yeah. about how big your circle is or how you know how how far out it goes it's it's important to those couple of people yeah absolutely and, and I, i'm sorry that was so long-winded and dramatic. no no i mean i, I just like, yeah, it's, it's not just, it's not just that, but it's also, it's, sh it should, I mean, it, it's not, it's not should or shouldn't be anything, but I found that for me, 
it was what was important for me. Yeah. And, and you have repeatedly talked about service and being in service of other people. And I mean, that's a huge thing in the 12 step program that, you know, I mean, you are realizing without it in a very, in a very profound way. And so, um, yeah, I mean, how can I be of service? And it's in answering that question every day, I tend to make the best choices, right? We tend to make yeah. better choices if we go, how can I help people today? And you're like, oh, okay, well, let me answer that question. And then I live my life. I'm just a lot happier and more comfortable with myself when I yeah. answer that question. Even the little things, even, you know, today I was stalking your Instagram page and I saw your video with uh, Whitney Houston singing in the background. God, it, it made was, me happy. <laughs> it was so strange. We stopped at this gas station. We were on this bike ride. This is not related at all, but um, <laughs> we were, we were on this bike ride. We got, we went the wrong way from the very beginning down the bike path. So we dead ended into some bramble and we had to dig our way out and we were in oh, some, God. we were in some vineyard we weren't supposed to be in. So get to the freeway. And so now we're out in the middle of the woods and we pull over to, um, to the gas station to use the restroom. And this truck is like, it's audible how loud it is. <laughs> from they're just blasting i will always love you bodyguard whitney houston yeah and i'm like where am i like this is not this doesn't happen here this is so who is this man and what kind of day is he having like what is going on here and then they were he was gone but um you need a little whitney sometimes i'm sometimes. not gonna lie and, uh, you know, and it was funny because we had this huge epic adventure ride and my the, the tripod thing on my bike broke. So I wasn't able to get any footage of any of it, <laughs> no. except for that, except for the moment where we stopped. And so, yeah, it's like and I was like, I don't normally share this kind of goofy stuff. Like, I don't know, but it just seemed too good too right. not to. Yeah, yeah. I so needed it. It was it. right for me. So thank you. Mm -hmm. You're welcome. <laughs> You're you. welcome. It was my pleasure. Um, but yeah, I mean, how do you, so today, like what has the last, you know, nine months and the podcast and talking to people and, um, you know, I mean, I, where do you stand now with all of it? How do you feel about, um, I mean, what have you learned? What do you, <sighs> um, well, I know that's a big question, but no, it's a, it's a great question, actually. And it, it's actually a question that I ask myself every couple of days. I try to, to not to sound too hippy dippy, um, but I try to check in with myself because I'm, I'm terrible at sitting still terrible. Um, I'm not feeling super great today. Like I mentioned to you off, mm -hmm. off camera and I haven't gone for a run and I'm like a panther in a cage. I can't. So what I've learned is to check in with myself and ask myself just that. What am I learning? What can I work on? What would I still like to learn? Yeah. I, the biggest, most important thing to me in doing the podcast um, for the past almost six months is not to judge anyone, anyone. That goes for the people that I speak with on the show. It goes for homeless people that I may encounter throughout the day. Um, 
people perhaps with special needs that others would see like wandering around in the park and, and like go out of their way to avoid them. I don't do things like that anymore because I'm way more aware that there is always something going on beneath the surface. Um, I find myself with a level of patience that I definitely didn't have when my dad was alive. Um, and I just find myself considering others more and, and how they might be feeling and what they may be going through. I'm also very honest with my inner circle as far as my mental capacity to, to hang out or to do things. You know, I won't lie. If you ask me to hang out one day and I'm just like, I'm not feeling it, I, I'll just tell you. Whereas I used to make up an excuse or I will blame my kid or whatever the case. And I'm sorry if anybody listening to this, if I'm ratting myself out. Um, but I think that's the biggest thing that I've learned. It sounds corny, but honesty really is, is the best. It's the best way to live, live your life for yourself and for others. Um, I'm learning new techniques. Like I mentioned earlier, one size is not fits all in recovery. And so I'm, I'm really grateful to be learning more about Al-Anon, more about um, adult children of alcoholic programs and more about harm reduction and spaces like that. So the terminology that I didn't have before, the resources that I didn't have before, the books that I wasn't aware of to read, all of the things that I didn't know for 35 years, I'm catching up on and I'm so grateful. Yeah. So grateful. Good. <clears throat> well, I, yeah. I want to thank you so much for doing this. Thank you. Um, I appreciate your time and telling your story and, um, and where can people find this podcast one more time, just so that we, we, we get it, we get it right. I just want to make sure. <laughs> so it is the yeah. sticky Eddie podcast. Again, as John mentioned, sticky is S T I I C K Y. We are available on most streaming platforms, or you can always find me via the link in my bio. I am on Instagram at Chelsea runs around. The Sticky Eddie podcast also has an IG page. Just start typing it in and it will come up. There are <laughs> underscores in the name that make it very lengthy. And I'm sorry right. about that. Um, you can also email the podcast if you're interested in sharing your story. Anonymity is fine with me. And sometimes it's appreciated. The email for the show is stickyeddiepodcast at gmail.com. And yeah, John, you are a great guest. Um, I strongly encourage everybody to check out your episode of my show as well. Um, I just, uh, you speak so eloquently and it's so clear that you're a writer and a craftsman in, in the arts for sure with the way that you articulate. <laughs> thank you. I think that's a great way to end it. Um, <clears throat> Kelsey, thank you so much. I appreciate thank it. Thank you. Thanks again for listening. Our music as always is by Neglect. You can find more of his stuff at neglect.bandcamp.com. And you can find us on all social media platforms that matter. Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And you can reach us at asforalcoholic at gmail.com. Talk to you later. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>